0: We can rejoice because Emmanuel did come to Israel and came to the world, amen? So let's uh, go to him and pray and ask that he would bless our time in his word. Lord, we thank you that you as Emmanuel did come, God with us, to show us how to live, to be our example, to be our sacrifice, to send the Holy Spirit to us to give us the power to be able to be the kinds of people that you would have us to be. Lord, I pray that you would help us as we open your word to understand a little bit more about who you really are, Lord Jesus. Because over the years, there have been a lot of misunderstandings. So, Lord, I pray that you'll help us understand who you are. Help us to worship you aright by the way that we live our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, today we get to continue to marvel at our magnificent God. He gives such gracious and magnificent gifts, doesn't he? Beginning with creation, we look around at the things that are seen and unseen. Right now, there's not so much vegetation that we can see, and the leaves have kind of fallen down. They're dead, right? But we anticipate spring coming. And then we have the animals of all kinds, scary and not so scary. And for me, snakes fit into the scary category. As do hornets. And that's why I have my trusty bug zapper tennis racket. You know, a little couple zaps will do you, right? And so I like that. And the birds, I think, as well. At least those who haven't flown deeper south for the winter. And I actually saw a bird at one of my windows the other day trying to get into our house. It wasn't all that cold, but I don't know what was going on with the bird. Maybe he's disoriented. And many of us have pets as well, of all kinds. To include the scary creatures called snakes. One of our adopted granddaughters actually has one of those as a pet. I don't like that, but hey, that's, you you do you, right? So. And all around us though, we see reminders of the true and living God. For we were all fellow imagers of God. You know, the Lord has given us the gift of life and of relationships. And many of us have good health. We can thank the Lord for that and the technology to help us regain relative healthiness when we get sick or injured. In short, the Lord is good all the time. And the Lord Jesus said it well when he reminded his disciples of the Father's goodness to everyone regardless of their spiritual status, regardless of whether they're spiritually dead or spiritually alive. Your heavenly Father makes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. And all of us who are in the family this morning, the family of God through faith in Christ and repentance of sin, we can say truly we serve a magnificent God. He is worthy of all praise and all honor. And the most praiseworthy thing the Most High has ever done for us is to offer eternal salvation. It was the first Christmas present that the world ever had. And it shows us the extent of his love for us. And we know the verses, John three sixteen and 17. And so if you will recite them with me, please. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, most of you know what I'm about to say, but it definitely bears repeating. The first part of John 3 16 literally reads this way. This is the way God loved us. You know, when it says that God so loved the world, that's what that means. It's not so much of, of quantity, but quality and how he loved us. He loved us by sending us his son. No other gift could or would do in regards to eternal salvation. For eternal salvation is wrapped up in Jesus. And today, we get to talk about God's gift to us. Messiah, Jesus. Two weeks ago, we asked the question, who needs Christmas? And the answer is, we all do. Why? Because we all need eternal salvation. And eternal salvation is only found in a proper relationship to Christ, the eternal Son of God. And in 2021, Mechanicsville, Virginia, we who know Christ have the sure knowledge that he is faithful and true. God made the promise and he fulfilled it by sending his son. Jesus was born. He lived. He died as the sacrifice for our sin and rose again three days later, about 2000 years ago. How do we know this to be true? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? We look in the book, the Scriptures. It's right there in the Bible. And the information about who Jesus is and what He did is found in Holy Scripture. And we're so very familiar with the Christmas story. Mary and Joseph and her baby. The angel Gabriel telling them to name the baby Jesus. Shepherds, more angels. Simeon and Anna in the temple in Jerusalem. The visit from the Magi from the east. Herod committing infanticide in Bethlehem while Mary and Joseph and Jesus flee to Egypt. They return to Nazareth after Herod the Great passed off the scene. And we think, well, that's a story, all right. Just the way that we remember it. Just the way that we heard it. So we've always heard it. But there's a huge backstory associated with the Christmas story and its aftermath that we don't normally think about. And it begins with the reality of the Jews' expectations of the coming Messiah. If you were able to catch last week's message, you know that we talked about the desperation that the Jews felt for centuries. They had been under the domination of foreign governments for hundreds of years. And they longed to be free. From the tyranny. A couple minutes ago we sang the song, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And we sing the song, but do we really resonate with that? To us, really, it's just a song, isn't it? But imagine, if you will, being a Jew under the brutal control of foreign governments, even in your own land. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, which mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice! Rejoice! Emmanuel will come to thee, O Israel. See, they were desperate for a king, a military leader on conquest, throwing off the tyranny of foreign domination. For years, even centuries, God's people waited for a deliverer. Would God fulfill His promise to His people? In the midst of their waiting, Jesus was born. Christ, the Messiah. He was to be the anointed one to sit on the throne of his ancestor, King David. And this is what the angel told Mary when he visited her. And several months prior to Jesus' birth, Mary's cousin Zechariah described the Messiah as one who would, quote, save us from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. We remember how the angel's proclaimed to shepherds that a Savior was born. Savior who is Christ, the Messiah, the Lord. And the shepherds dropped what they were doing to go check it out. And lo and behold, everything the angels told the shepherds was true. And they spread the news that the Lord, Messiah, Christ was born. And a few weeks later, Mary and Joseph presented Jesus for His dedication at the temple. They offered up a couple of birds as an offering on the altar. You know, it was a, it was a poor man's sacrifice according to ritual. They met Simeon, a godly man who had a close walk with the Lord. And God promised his servant that he would not die until he had seen his Messiah. His eyes were physically placed upon that baby. He held Jesus in his arms while blessing both Mary and the Lord. And an 84 year old widow named Anna a prophetess, also saw and gave testimony that, that the newly born Messiah was in their midst. And Luke writes, after they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their hometown of Nazareth. And the child, as in Jesus, grew and became strong and filled with wisdom and the favor of God was upon him. A couple of years later, several sky watchers called Magi came to Israel. And they were from the east, probably from modern day Iran. And they were on a quest to seek the one who was born king of the Jews. They went to evil Herod and found out from his staff that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, according to ancient prophecy. So they went to Bethlehem and found Jesus now a toddler, and worshipped him by presenting him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. But before they went to Bethlehem, Herod instructed the magi to return to him, to let him know where to find Jesus. But when they didn't come back, Herod was livid, and he took his anger out on them by killing all the baby boys two years old and younger. And while this was going on, an angel told Joseph to take Mary and Jesus to Egypt to flee from Herod's wrath. Stay there till it was safe to return to Nazareth, their hometown. And after Herod died, the angel told them it was okay then to return home. Well, that's the Christmas story. And you might say, remember when I said that there is a huge backstory in the aftermath of the Christmas story that we don't normally think about. See, because I don't know about you, but I don't think life stopped after Jesus was born. It went on. But whatever came of the story? The story of Messiah coming and delivering them from the Romans. See, Jesus dropped out of sight until he was about 30. Well, except for that little episode where Mary and Joseph lost Jesus in Jerusalem. Remember that? What about that grand announcement that Gabriel told Mary that Jesus was to sit on King David's throne? When was the Messiah going to save the Jews from their enemies and from the hand of all who hated them? When was he going to amass a Jewish army and revolt against the Romans and restore the kingdom to Israel? This is what the people expected the Messiah to do. So Jesus, until he was 30 years old, Nothing happened on the political deliverance front. It seemed as though nothing much happened in Israel at all during those years. Unless we take into account this weird looking guy named John. Who continued to cry out, repent of your sins and get baptized. He continued to shout, prepare the way of the Lord. As a voice crying out in the wilderness. And one day, John sees Jesus. Look. There goes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus desires John to baptize him. But the forerunner, Jesus' cousin John says, I'm unworthy to baptize you. And Jesus says, let's do this to fulfill all righteousness. And so John consented. And a dove lands on Jesus. And a voice from heaven says these words. You are my beloved son. I am pleased with you. And here's where Jesus begins his ministry, picking up where John left off because Herod had John thrown into prison, persecuted for righteousness sake, and he would never leave from the prison alive. And Jesus begins his time among the people with the message, repent and believe the gospel the same words that John had used. He heals all kinds of people suffering from all kinds of diseases and cast out demons but there's something conspicuously absent from Jesus' pronouncements and his ministry. Jesus, when are you going to restore political sovereignty to Israel? What kind of Messiah are you anyway? Something else Jesus does. As one who has a reputation as a rabbi, he turns established tradition on its head. For tradition says that when people wanted to be a disciple of a rabbi, they would come to the rabbi and then they would ask. And then the rabbi would check him out extensively. And should that candidate pass muster, the rabbi would then say, follow me. But with Jesus, instead of people seeking him out, it's now Jesus who does the seeking. And he begins with four disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And then Philip and Nathaniel follow soon after and eventually, Jesus' span of disciples, whom he names apostles, grows to 12. Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God and demonstrates what kingdom life is like. He performs physical healings because when the kingdom fully comes, disease will be taken care of. And by the way, death will too. He casts out demons because in the fullness of time, in the fullness of the kingdom, there will be no evil spiritual forces. Jesus performed miracles to show that he had control over nature. He forgave sins because in the kingdom there is reconciliation, complete reconciliation between God and man. And for all the good things that he was doing and teaching, Jesus, what's going on with you? You're to be the political and royal Messiah. You had come to overthrow the Romans, didn't you? See, this is what everybody was waiting for, including the apostles. Even up to the day that Jesus ascended back to the Father, after he was crucified, after he was raised, and after the 40 days, he continued to teach them intensely about the about the kingdom of God. The disciples asked this question. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They were still waiting for this. So let's step back now and sort of take this in. See the story of Messiah Jesus the one who would sit on David's throne, anointed to be be the nation's deliverer, simply did not do as the people expected. But there was a time when Jesus actually dabbled into the politics of the day. He only dabbled, though, by confronting the governmental authorities with divine truth. A question was asked him one day, Jesus, is it lawful? Should we Jews... Pay taxes to Caesar. So how did Jesus handle that? He took a coin and he said, whose inscription is on this? It said Caesar's. And then Jesus said this, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. Now the Caesar was beginning to acquire a taste to be worshiped as a God in those days. And Jesus said, in essence, don't worship Caesar. Give the worship to the Lord. Give the worship to God. But pay due deference, pay due uh, respect to Caesar. And by the way, pay your taxes. So who really is this Jesus? What was he doing amassing disciples? And what kept the disciples going with him? Why did they continue on with him? Because what was their expectation as well? We know this. See, I can imagine them being tempted at times to give up on Jesus because, in their opinion, he was a lousy political revolutionary. Overthrowing the Romans did not seem to be on his radar screen. So what was it that attracted the disciples to Jesus? Well, the longer the disciples were with Jesus, the more they began to change. It seemed that the political revolutionary idea of Messiah went further and further into the background. See, they were learning that Jesus' purpose for coming was far different than mere political deliverance from Roman tyranny. And over time, the disciples began to see that Jesus as Messiah was not exactly as they expected. But his was something far more impressive, far more captivating, far more important than anything any of the disciples could ever anticipate. And they eventually learned that Jesus was king. He was king of the Jews. He had a kingdom, but it was of a different dimension altogether. On the day of his crucifixion, he stood before Pilate. And here's what he said. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. So the Messiahship of Jesus did not include the overthrow of the Romans after all. But something had been stirring in the hearts and minds of the disciples all along. And it had to do with the Old Testament Scripture, the only Scripture that they had, and how Jesus fulfilled the Messianic prophecies. Let that sink in. See, the disciples knew the Scripture They studied it. They went to Torah school to figure it out. Again, they fully anticipated Messiah. And they knew the prophecies. And they also knew the context in which the prophecies were written and set. See, every prediction in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah had a historical context. See, these prophecies did not refer to coming of Messiah as if some sort of putting a box around all these things. And then people would read them and say, oh, I know what that prophecy is all about. That's about Jesus who's going to come in a couple hundred years. They didn't do that. It wasn't, it wasn't on their screen either. See, we can go through the literally the hundreds of prophecies that Jesus fulfilled as Messiah and look at this historical context. Wouldn't it be great to be here for... Days and days to do this? I don't see a whole lot of, yes! But let me just tell you one of historical context about one prophecy that Jesus fulfilled. And that was Jesus born of a virgin. And that's a pretty important prophecy, don't you think? The context for this prophecy is Isaiah's encounter with King Ahaz. And that's Isaiah chapter 7. He was one of the many wicked kings in Judah's history. He completely failed to trust the Lord in the midst of the several military threats surrounding Judah during his reign. But God, in his mercy, sent Isaiah to him and invited Ahaz to ask for a sign to be assured that the Lord would be with him and his people. And God said through Isaiah, Ask me for something, anything. Let it be as deep as Sheol, the depths of the earth, or as high as heaven. Ask me anything you want, Ahaz. Let me assure you that I am with you. And Ahaz, in an appalling display of false humility, said these words. I will not ask, and I will not test the Lord. How arrogant do you have to be to say that to God? Well, that raised God's ire just a little bit, don't you think? And the Lord said, in essence, You refuse to ask for a sign, but I'm going to give you one anyway. And here's where Isaiah 7.14 comes in. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land in whose two kings you dread will be deserted the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house. Such days has not had come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. I'm sending you the king of Assyria. In other words, God's sign to Ahaz was that an Alma, an Alma, translated virgin in English, was to bear a child. Now this Hebrew word Alma is referred to in some places in the Hebrew Bible As virgin. Other places, as simply a young girl of marriageable age, not necessarily a virgin. So which is it? Alma will bear a son, and his name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. So far from God blessing Ahaz, the Lord gave this sign to wicked king as a severe rebuke and a prediction of coming judgment. For while Emmanuel is still a little kid, extreme disaster will come upon the nation. That is the context of Isaiah 7.14. So what in the world does this prophecy of God's chastisement of Ahaz and Judah have to do with Messiah, Jesus? One of Jesus' apostles, Matthew, of course, was inspired by the Spirit to write that Jesus' birth was a fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14. And here's what he says in Matthew 1:22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This begs the question, doesn't it? How could Jesus' birth be of the fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14, given the historical context? There's a reason for that. I'll point it out. But let's continue to walk with Jesus and the disciples as they followed him, the one who they didn't expect. So Jesus trained them and he gave them power and further revelation to show that he was indeed the promised Messiah. Remember the day when Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter, the spokesman for all of them, says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him and said, Simon Barjona, blessed are you for flesh and blood. It's not revealed this to you, but my father has revealed this to you. There is no room for celebration at this point. As in like, hey, guys, I'm glad that you finally understand about who I am. Because they didn't understand who he was. Matthew 16, 21 and 23 tells us this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Think about what was going on in their minds and about their expectations as a Messiah. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Lord, far be it from you, this shall never happen to you. How did he respond to Peter? Get behind me, Satan for you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Truth of the matter is, in order for the kingdom of God to be established, sin and death must be dealt with. There were Messianic prophecies called the suffering servant passages which predict that the Messiah will die for the sins of the people. It was these prophecies that Jesus referred to In his first coming, passages like Isaiah 53, for example. Well, a few weeks after this encounter I hear, Jesus observed a Seder meal with his men one final time. He was arrested and charged with no crime, but they sentenced him to torture and to death anyway. He was taken down from the cross, placed in a tomb, but he would only need that tomb for three days. Jesus rose victorious from the grave. Hallelujah. But did the apostles really get it? Did they understand? Well, you know, their light bulbs came on, but only dimly, very dimly. Remember on Resurrection Day, how the women went to the tomb, they came back, they reported to the apostles, to the disciples, these great godly men, the Lord is alive. Did they believe it? No. No. Not really. They did go and they checked it out, though, finally. That's great. And later on, though, on that same day, Jesus talked to two very distraught men on the road to Emmaus. And when Jesus engaged in conversation with them, he discovered the reason for their sadness. And in Luke 24, 19 to 23, he says this. The two men talked to Jesus and he said, Jesus of Nazareth was a man, a prophet, Mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But now get this, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Again, there is that conquering hero idea. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. And moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find the body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So what was Jesus' response to this? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself the things pertaining to his suffering and entry into his glory. Well, that night, Jesus paid a visit to his disciples. Then he said to them in Luke 24, these are my words I spoke to you with that while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures Then for the next 40 days, the crucified, resurrected Messiah now spoke to the 11 apostles and gave them more intense training on the ways of the kingdom, and then he ascended into heaven. Pentecost came, and they were baptized in a Spirit, and several decades went by, and the apostles, now seasoned by ministry and at times having endured tremendous persecution, began to reflect on Messiah, And how contrary to their expectations, he was. But it was their expectations that were in error. Not the prophecies. Their expectations were. But it wasn't as though things were wrapped up in a nice, neat little gold package. See, with the Messianic prophecies, along with their contexts, it was hard to figure out. It was hard to disciple as you were reading them. Before Christ, that is. One person described Mosaic prophecies, as they were recorded in Scripture, like this. It's like trying to put together a jigsaw puzzle without the picture. You know, it's as though someone threw away the box lid, right? Anyone who's ever tried to do that knows how extraordinarily difficult it is. Now, some things we don't need the big picture for when we do a puzzle, right? We got the corner pieces, we got the side pieces, and that's cool. But try to fill in the middle part. Without the picture. It's very, very difficult. And when we look at the Messianic prophecies without the benefit of the big picture, we get confused. So for the apostles, how did that happen? How were they able to fit it all together? Well, it was the ministry of the Holy Spirit revealing to them that in Jesus, all the Messianic prophecies were fulfilled during their last meal together, Jesus told them about the ministry of the Holy Spirit who was coming and what he would do with them and for them. Now, in in John chapters 14 to 16, there's a lot of teaching about the Holy Spirit. Let me give you just a couple of passages that talk about this very thing. In John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. John fifteen twenty six, Jesus says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me. Also in John sixteen thirteen and 14, we read these words. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The ministry of the Holy Spirit was vital in the apostles' lives to write the Scripture. So how did this work with the Scripture writers? You know, When Matthew or John, for example, sat down to reflect on what they should be writing about Jesus, they reflected much on what the Scripture had to say about the Messiah, both what the Jews expected the Messiah to be like, and also the many things that the people missed about the Messiah. And as they wrote, the Holy Spirit gave them revelation and understanding about these prophecies. So let's go back to Isaiah 7.14, for example, real quick. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. Well, how did the Holy Spirit interpret this Prophecy in relation to Jesus. Holy Spirit inspired him to give his readers what was important to tell the story of the Messiah, the bits and pieces of that prophecy. Virgin conceiving and bearing a son. Emmanuel, which means God with us. Those parts were used to tell the story of Jesus to advance the narrative, so to speak. And by the way, the Greek word that Matthew uses here, it only means one thing. It only means virgin. In the Hebrew, it could mean a virgin, at court, or not. But in the Greek, it means virgin. That's all it means. So we might want to call this process here God's divine commentary on the Old Testament prophecies as the Gospel writers look back on the Scriptures, look back on the prophecies. So to follow the analogy, in the 21st century, we have a box lid. It took the Lord himself to open the minds of the gospel writers and took the Holy Spirit to fill in all the spaces. And now you and I have a complete picture of the Messiah who fulfilled the prophecies as recorded in the gospels. And so I see here in this, in this message two takeaways. The first is that God, again, fulfills his promises in his way and in his time. The apostles had a front row seat to watch all this unfold. Again, they were fully expecting a conquering hero when Messiah came. And let me just add, came the first time. He will come as a conquering hero when he comes back again, right? He did come as a conqueror, but his victory was over sin and death. And that's the foundation from which everything flows. The apostles had to overcome their disappointment with their understanding of Messiah in order to trust Messiah Jesus. They had one view of Messiah. But what was the real view of Jesus? It was different. And they had to humble themselves and place their faith in another object, who Jesus really is and really was. And this change in the object of their faith changed everything. For if they had not changed, these apostles, these men, would have missed the Messiah and they would have spent the rest of their lives looking for a Messiah of their own understanding, and they would not have found it. And that's a challenge for us, isn't it? How many of us have a misunderstanding of the Lord? At least some area of our lives. How many of us completely understand God? I don't see anybody say, I do, I do. We all misunderstand the Lord at times, don't we? And maybe oftentimes, or maybe seldom we do understand. And especially when He allows pain and suffering in our lives. Or worse, He allows pain and suffering in the lives of those that we love. How many bargain with God during times like this? Lord, do what you want with me, but leave my loved one alone. It's in those excruciating painful times that the Lord is asking us to trust Him. How many of the disciples had personal experience of the brutality of the Romans? How many of the apostles themselves may have actually seen their loved ones being taken away to slavery, for example, or worse? Every day, everybody wanted to get rid of the Romans because of the brutality. But our God is in the heavens. He does what he pleases, says the psalmist. When the pain comes, can we trust him? When the good times come, do we forget him? Let's adopt the attitude of Paul, who himself was waiting to hear from Nero the Caesar, to stand in front of him to determine whether Paul was going to keep his head or not. And he writes this in Philippians four. 4. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, Rejoice. Don't rejoice in circumstances. Don't rejoice only when the Lord allows good things. Rejoice in the Lord. Period. Remember Job's testimony when he was going through the most difficult time in his life and he said, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. And by the way, the Lord even used the brutality of the Romans to advance salvation. It was only the Romans back in those days that crucified people. Crucifixion was a prediction of what the Messiah would go through. He was crucified according to and due to Roman brutality. God used it, even that, to advance salvation for us. The second takeaway has to do with Scripture itself. In a nutshell, the Holy Spirit inspired the New Testament Scripture writers to accurately interpret all the Messianic prophecies regarding the first coming of Christ. But as we know, there are many other prophecies that have not yet been fulfilled. If we're careful readers, we know that to be true. And so if the ever faithful God inspired New Testament scripture writers to understand the prophecies regarding the first coming of Christ, and they all came true, we can have every confidence that every other prophecy regarding the Messiah, Messiah Jesus, will come true at his return. Amen? Amen. We can rejoice with the psalmist who said, forever, O Lord, is your word firmly fixed in the heavens. We have a book with all scripture literally breathed out by the Lord who has, as Peter says, given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. We can trust the Lord and what this book says. So as we close this message today, let's appreciate God's Christmas present now more than ever before. Culture tells us that we need to have a lot of presents under the tree. Isn't that right? To advance their bottom line and Black Friday, all that kind of stuff. And after Christmas is over, what do we have? We've got good memories and we've got tons of stuff to play with and tons of stuff to use. But sooner or later, all the trinkets, all the toys, all the tools, it's going to do one of two things. Either gonna get broken or get lost. Isn't that right? And then what do we have? Bills! God tells us that we need to focus on and give praise for his presence, not under the tree, but on the tree. Messiah Jesus, who came at just the right time in human history that we might be redeemed, he came to give us eternal Life. And here's how Jesus described it in his prayer to the Father right before he was crucified in John 17.3. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Let's press on to know our God. And let's give thanks to God for his indescribable gift. Let's pray. Lord, we cannot thank you enough. We cannot praise you enough for your gift. Father, we are so grateful. But on the same token, on the other hand, Lord, we we don't have a clue of the depth of our sin. We don't have a clue of your absolute burning holiness. We don't have a clue of how angry you are at sin in the world. We don't have a clue, Lord, of how deep the death of Christ paid for our sin. All of it, Lord Jesus, when you hung on the cross, you paid for all of our sin. And now we're free if we're in you. Lord Jesus, I praise you for being the eternal Son of God who paid an eternal debt that we could never pay. We owe you, Lord. We owe you our lives. We thank you for giving us eternal life in Christ. So, Father, I pray that you will help us by your Spirit to be able to live a life that reflects gratitude for what you've done for us. Thank you again, Lord Jesus, for coming, for living the perfect life, for being qualified to be the sacrifice. Help us, Lord, to give our lives as a living sacrifice to you. And now, Lord, I pray as we turn our attention to the giving, we thank you, Lord, that you have been so faithful here. You've been faithful in nudging your people to give, and we've responded in obedience. Thank you for this. And I pray, Lord, that you help us to take these, these monies, these financial resources, and translate them into ministry, that your gospel may go forth around the world and here in Mechanicsville as well. Thank you, Lord, for the time that we can have to sing now. And I pray that we will sing as well with, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength as a sacrifice to you, as an act of worship to you.